The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everybody. It is Tuesday, June 20th, and at this hour, New York City is the capital of the world and epicenter of global business, tourism, commerce, fashion, and culture. It's the most populous city in the United States, the second wealthiest city in the world, and is home to more Fortune 500 companies than any other city. We are going to talk about this and how real estate is affected by all of it. Also at this hour, Manhattan's real estate market saw record high prices during the first few months of this year, but buyers still have a lot of bargaining power, according to reports released last week. So what actually is a buyer's market? Are we in a buyer's market? We'll talk about it. The panel is here for Hot Topics, but first I would like to welcome my listeners in the United States and around the world. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate. I'm your host, Vince Rocco, and if you want to call into the program this morning, the number is 1-866-472-5788. That is 1-866-472-5788. And in the news this morning, the 1031 ex- tax exchange uh, break for clients used extensively in the commercial and residential real estate industry could disappear if Congress passes a lower tax rate. The Trump administration revealed its tax reform plan in April, proposing massive cuts to individual, corporate, and other business taxes. The tax break gives sellers of real estate and other asset types the opportunity to defer capital gains taxes by reinvesting in like-kind properties. But lobbyists and Capitol Hill officials working on tax legislation have told the Wall Street Journal that even if a sweeping federal tax overhaul doesn't go ahead this year, a more modest tax rate cut may still wipe out the tax advantage. Some members of Congress are looking at cutting the 1031 exchange to finance the rate cut, according to a story last week in the Wall Street Journal. A couple of years after it was initially slated for demolition, an Upper East Side rectory is a step closer to its highest calling. Gary Barnett's Extel Development Company can now launch sales for its 16-story condominium development at the site of the Park Avenue Christian Church following acceptance of the project's offering plan by the New York State Attorney General's Office. The new development, located on Park Avenue between East 84th Street and 85th Street, will have just 11 apartments, but with a total target sellout price of $247.8 million. Apartment prices will start uh, very high and will average a whopping $22.5 million each. Melania and Barron Trump have reportedly moved from Trump Tower in New York and into the White House in Washington. The move comes six months after President Trump was inaugurated, which many found to be a little bit too long of a delay. The security measures necessary for keeping First Lady Barron, the First Lady and Barron, rather, in New York were estimated to be costing the city $146,000 a day. A petition on change.org uh, to make Melania Trump stay in the White House or pay for the expenses herself garnered more than 565 thousand signatures and they say manhattan real estate is expensive can you imagine 
Here are some little facts. So um, monthly cheat sheet from StreetEasy says that the sum of all sales listings currently on the market is $40.7 billion. Uh, the most expensive listing uh, is $65 million right now. Uh, and Prospect Heights is the neighborhood with the highest increase in prices. And Bay Ridge is also uh, a neighborhood with the highest increases in prices over the last year. What do you guys make of that? Good morning, by the way. Good morning. Good morning. So um, we are here with uh, Louise Phillips Forbes from Halstead Property, Phil Horrigan, leasebreak.com, and Sean McPeak from Compass. Those are staggering numbers. $40.7 billion currently on the market throughout New York City, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, blah, blah. What's even more amazing about that, Vince, is that you got to remember there's only 38% of entire housing inventory that's available to be bought. So that's even more interesting. And you remind us of that all the time because there still is a huge rental inventory. It's a a city of renters. Yeah, it's staggering. I thought that was quite amazing. And a $65 million apartment or or townhouse or whatever it is, I think it's a townhouse. No, it's a penthouse. A penthouse. It's a penthouse uh, on the market. I mean, that's not as, as, as staggering because, as we all know, we have... Similar prices across the board. So let's move on. Manhattan's real estate market saw record high prices during the first few months of the year, but buyers still have a lot of bargaining power, according to reports released last week. Um, several real estate companies, including Douglas Elliman, Halstead, and Cochran, said the borough's co-op and condo average sale price reached over $2.1 million for the first quarter of 2017. Despite the astronomical prices, the real estate companies said home hunters do have an advantage when it comes to bargaining. Available units are remaining longer on the market. Prices for new developments, which are in the seven-figure range, have been declining as owners scramble to fill the apartments, according to those reports. What's new here? I mean, what? where are we right now? I mean, the average price of an apartment, $2.1 million in the first quarter of this year, 2017. That's uh, significant. I think one of the things that we want, we have to just remember is that if you look at the climb that we experienced after the Great Recession and the resetting of the market that happened, it was unsustainable come 2015. And if you isolate the development projects, the percentage rate of that is 28% of growth in the last, you know, the beginning of this year. But those are, remember, deals that went to contract, some of them, in 2015. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, followed by that, that, that sort of plateau that we experienced – you know, we had volatility in the stock market in 2016. We had, you know, terrorism. We also had a crazy election. So I, I also think that that's why our $1.5 million market niche right now is so hot. Yeah. It, it's interesting to me, though, as you point out, Louise, though, you know, a lot of those contracts signed that are going to close or did close this first quarter are from 2015. Yes. Because new development does that. You know, you're, you're buying off of floor plans and it takes a year or two or three sometimes to put a building up and then finish and close. So how does that really skew the numbers? I mean, when, you, when you're looking at what really was the foundation of Q1 in 2017, what are really those numbers? Back them out, back new development out. Where, where, you know, how did we look? I mean, I mean, <clears throat> what I found, I did a did a comp for a client on uh, Midtown East, so uh, very competitive with a lot of the new developments we're really talking about right now. Well, well maybe not so competitive, <laughs> um, but it's 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 a very similar. It's a very high floor apartment, and what we found is that there is almost ten percent negotiating. Uh, 
lot of the apartments that sold in the area that were not part of the brand new buildings. And I wouldn't be surprised if we saw that type of discount on some of these new developments. I mean, you're seeing a big broker incentive. Commission rates significantly, you know. You mean in, in existing co-ops and condos that, yeah. Well, also new developments as well. They're, they're, um, and even, even in my Well, company, give me an example of what you're talking about. Um, I think that, I don't know. Talking about at 432 Park Avenue, for yeah. example, yeah, the resales there. Yeah, no, not the resales, the, from the actual developer. Yeah. Actual developer incentives have increased. Um, and uh, even, even in our company, we're, we're being incentivized to bring buyers to our new developments, and we're getting increased commission splits on, on our own deals. I'm seeing that in the development that I'm selling now on the east side. We, there, you know, everybody says, is there room in the price? I mean, we, li- we live by that mantra. But you know, in new development, of course, it never was that way. But I'm seeing a lot more flexibility and a lot more deals being done on the front end as well as the back end as developers try to close you know the they want to re- they want to get rid of the, the the risk and they exactly and they want to move on to the next um, the good news is that there's still a market out there for new development purchasers I mean this is why our buyers time. should be you know it's opportunistic time so the uh, the other absolutely. thing absolutely you have to be really careful with the average price because not only do you have to look at things that closed a few years or went into contract a few years ago that are closing now but also just the quote unquote mix is often skewed so there are a lot more new development types of apartments just closing in general or sometimes it's just higher end properties that are closing and that'll skew the average up a lot and so you really have to dig in and understand the micro markets and also understand what's actually going into contract right now and that's why brokers are so helpful because they'll actually say well what's going into contract right now and how does that compare with the current yeah no longer does the sold and close really it's not that relevant and i also Mm -hmm. we got to remember very important point it's not it's just not not. and and you you know it's like well my neighbor down below me right below me got this last year i was like okay that was last year this is today and the resale market not the development market is 80 percent of our inventory, Correct. which is why our boards need to, for co-ops and condos, whether it's Park Avenue or East Village, you need to be open for renovations and things that the policies that have been restrictive, they're not going to tolerate. Yeah, it. the archaic buildings are really inhibiting. They're um, suffering. It, yeah. It's just interesting, too, on the heels of what Louise just said a minute ago. I mean, it's so true how the market really, I think the market, when I'm talking to sellers in particular, and I just had one conversation last week with a new listing we put up, the market is so fluid and it changes so much or it's it's been so flatlined for so long, all of the above, that you really can't compare what happened last year. And you really can't compare what happened six months ago. What I try and impress upon people today, it's really difficult to do, is that Today is what today is, and, right. and and that's all that matters when you're trying to list something, trying to price something, trying to purchase something. It's what today says because I don't know what tomorrow's going to say. And and I think one of the things that I utilize as an educational tool for my sellers as well as my buyers is as we look at what's actually in contract. I just did a. I have a piece of property in Tribeca, and I did three bedroom search from three million to four and a half. They're fourteen in contract from the West Village, Chelsea, and Tribeca. That's astounding, and 11 of them are in development. So look how slow that new that the resale market is in that niche. Absolutely. All right, moving on. New York City is the capital of the world, an epicenter of global business, as I said up front. Tourism, commerce, fashion, culture. It's the most popular city in the U.S., the second wealthiest city in the world, and the home to more Fortune 500 companies 
than in any other city. So when you snap that into the real estate world here that we all play in, how does it affect the real estate world? What do we see as a result of being the fashion capital of the world or the, the have the most Fortune 500 companies? Where do, what does that mean to the real estate market here in New York City for like, the listeners around the world who are not familiar with this? Like from a global investor's perspective, you mean? Sure. Or, um, I think there's a sense of security. So people look at, if they're going to invest in real estate, they'll look at New York City kind of how they may look at Apple or Google or General Electric or you know a, a company that is a multi-billion dollar company that is fairly secure and is a place that they know they could put their money. And sure, there may be fluctuations up or down, but they have a sense of confidence that overall things will be moving in the up direction. Or a buy and hold. Or a buy and hold. And even if things are, say, get terrible, let's just say there's some terrible tragedy, still there's a thought that you know, New York City would hold its ground a little there's bit There's always better. a level of buoyancy. I mean, there's a lot of different types of buyers. Um, and I think another type of buyer that's emerging and kind of, um, I think, is going to replace that kind of that strong finance sect of buyers is uh, tech money. I really find like a lot of these guys getting bought out. Um, their company, they're selling their company. Back to tech money. And I really think, you know, especially, I think you're seeing in Flatiron really is where you're seeing like a very strong uh, tech buyer come in and really push prices. Let's hold that thought and pick it up after the break. This is Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. A few messages and we will be right back. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their products. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Our parents like our everybody. We are back. And Sean brought up a good point before we went to break that, you know, we're seeing a lot more of the tech industry, you know, uh, money coming back into the investment world. So aside from tech industry, I mean, there's the Wall Street money. Where else is it coming from, you know, to keep the, the I guess, market afloat um, more so than, say, domestic 
purchasers and buyers out there? I mean, is is any specific industries other than tech? I wanted to say Bitcoin, but I just just kidding. But um, Bitcoin. You know, no, but it, it's funny. There's, I mean, this is sort of segue a little bit, and hope I can't too much off topic. But there are, is a belief out there that in 20 years the financial sector will be completely obliterated from the blockchain, which is associated with Bitcoin and Ethereum and a couple other, um, you know, digital currency. I mean, I'm really it's. Fascinating. Like, I mean, I, fascinating I, I partially agree with that, but I also think that these bankers and finance guys are smart as whips, and they're going to evolve. Yes, but I will tell you that I, for some, I've been helping somebody who was looking to spend between sixty and eighty thousand a month on a rental. Who's all coming here for the Bitcoin world? You know, but, interesting. For, for the listeners out there, because even being in this business for as long as I've been in this business, I hear things like. I want to spend sixty to eighty thousand dollars a month in New York City for however long or for whatever reason, and you just think to yourself, "Oh my God!" So the listeners out there in in in, in around the world who hear us and on this program this morning say, "What do you what? get for that kind of money? And why not buy something for that kind of money?" You can you can save yourself a good thirty to fifty million dollars doing that. <laughs> well, th- there right. you go. Okay, right. that's I mean, upfront money. You're right. I mean, if you don't want to spend $30, $50 million and you want to Because you can't su- finance $30, right. $50 million. Right. And you want to be in a super, super cool place and you have a few million dollars Correct. to spend, that's where you... Okay. So that's a good point because you, know, you, you can't really finance $30 or $50 million purchase. You know, that's a cash deal. So if you don't want to do that, you can certainly afford the sixty dollars or $80,000 a month coming out of that. We wow. hope they would buy, though, and find us as their Well, we would broker. love for them to buy so we can take a year off and go to the Caribbean or something, <laughs> right? All right, moving on. New York City is known for being a hyper-competitive real estate market with more demand than there is supply. Well-priced properties are getting snapped up uh, within days of getting dropped onto the market only if priced correctly. Mm-hmm. Buying an apartment in New York City does not uh, start and stop with finding an apartment you like. Once you have found the property, you still need to go through the process, the accepted offer. So many parties shopping for real estate going into summer season, uh, patience will be your best friend. Let's discuss some of the reasons um, your offer could get rejected. You know, what people don't understand is here in New York City, you say, oh, I found an apartment I like, and I'm going to buy it, and it's going to be it. Or somebody says to me, oh, I have the down payment money, no issues. Well, there's a co-op board, so you can have all the down payment money you want. You can have all the, the mortgage, you know, approvals you want, but if a co-op board says no, it's no. But prior to the co-op board, you know, how or why can your offer not be accepted? There, there are missing, set, missing, missing the boat. I mean, I think that's part of one of the difficult challenges that we as brokers are are up against at the moment, particularly that two million and below market when things are priced properly. I am at the moment listing my properties sometimes a hundred thousand dollars below the market if people are trying to capture a deal before the summer, quote unquote July first. So I had twelve offers on a on a million five twenty five. It went a hundred and something thousand dollars over. I had something. I had three hundred and thirty thousand over a million nine ask, which, by the way, was underpriced two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So it's a strategy mm-hmm. that resale market sellers don't want to be don't want to be stuck in a process. They want to they want to lock and load. But let me ask you something on that because I I like that strategy and that strategy and I've deployed it a few times. But I, I tried to do it just recently and my seller was like, mm, well, I don't know, you know, because what happens if I only get an offer at that number? Well. You don't have to take it. You know. Yes, how you know it is. Um, it's a strategy that you have to believe in as and sell to them, and you have to 
you have to put your money where your mouth is. Well, he, you have a good point. So I will say when you're presenting this strategy to a seller, the strategy of let's underprice and try to get a bidding war, I will say that it's very, very risky to do that if the seller is not willing to at least take the asking price. Because now you're basically putting an apartment on the market and you're basically telling the seller as a broker, uh, you know, you're telling the seller, you will get over ask. I think that's always very dangerous. I would I um, would agree with that. So, yeah. So, usually you, the way, look, I think we talked about this in the past is there's a range, you tell the seller there's a range that I think this will go in. There's a range of prices this apartment is worth and that will sell for. Right. And then and we're going to price you it, get there. Right. And we're going to price it at the lower end of that range and let's hope for a bidding war but look, it's possible we don't get it. And and that, by the way, is true. It's not like you're trying to trick the seller. That is, there's because the truth is, there's no exact price that something's worth anyway. There's always a little bit of sub- subjective it's nature what the around. Will pay. It's worth right. what the buyer will pay. Right. And actually, that's one of the advantages of pricing a little lower is that you get that buyer that really wants the unit to pay a and little bit more. And there's competition and, and there's, va- there's validation. There's efficiency in our yeah. market. And I think that that is... Healthy I'm, competition validates the price on any level, I believe. Right. You cannot, we are, no matter how good we are, we cannot make up the market. There is an efficiency in the market, and when people make a commitment to sign something before they've sold, sign a contract to buy before they've sold, then you have to have a game plan prior to actually signing the contract that you're moving to. You know, so so some of the other reasons you could get rejected on an offer is, you know, your starting offer is way too low, and, and I, you still see that sometimes where people say, well, it's it's kind of in a questionable marketplace, so I don't really believe, you know, a million five is the number. So maybe I want to come in at a million two fifty. Right, but if you have a, a a like, I just had a listing off of Central Park West at forty one West ninety sixth Street, and had ninety three people through the door in eight days, and I set it up that we were going to go to best and final. I I communicated one on one with people, letting them know that I could have asked. A million six seventy five, but we made an we we decided to come in at a million five ninety five, and some of the uneducated buyers gave me a million six, and they're like, "I'm a qualified buyer. This is worth what this is, and you should take my deal because it's still over the ask." And of course, when you get to that that best and final situation, as Louise seems to be experiencing again, you you know you can have a problem with. An all-cash buyer versus you being a finance buyer. So <clears throat> the old green dollars up front oftentimes make a difference. The seller says, well, there's less risk if I go with the person who has all cash versus needing to finance. Well, sometimes you can structure your financing offer if you're competing against an all-cash in a way. Like, you know, you don't have a, uh, <clears throat> a contingency mm-hmm. for, uh, you know, an appraisal, for instance. And, you know, you kind of have some flexibility with your down payment so let's say you pay over ask, but the appraisal comes in lower. You can still make up the difference and give them confidence. Um, I've also had luck uh, getting deals with writing a love note to the, like a love letter to the seller. Yeah, we got that one. Yeah, and you're like, you know, I wrote one um, about this funky loft in Soho. I, about I absolutely how love it. My, my buyer was a doctor, um, and he went to medical school because his parents wanted him to, but he studied Zen Buddhism undergrad. And uh, I wrote all about like Zen Buddhism and well, how you, it was. Do you write it from you or fr- it's from the buyers? It's from the buyer. It's from the buyers, yeah. Okay, but I write it. Just make it clear. Yeah. I, I, um, I started doing that a couple of years ago. Right. And I have to tell you something. I win more than not by doing the little love notes, as he calls them, because they make a difference to, to certain buy, to certain yeah, sellers, certain certainly sellers. not everybody. Yeah. It's, it's really not like strictly, this is like personal. I don't know. To me, it's I, everyone yeah. says it's business, but it's always personal. There's a lot of personal, personal. mixed in. Totally. No but why wouldn't you let it come from them? 
because sometimes no, there were No, I do. No, no, I do. I channel. I just, you know, I just structure it. You know, it's, no, I channel that. I always, and even when I do a cell. Channeling I, the Buddhism there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm very Zen. So, uh, no, but I, I always channel my seller too. I'm like, why do you love this apartment? Why did you buy it? And then I try to, you know, try to position the apartment from the, you know, what, what locked them in. You know? I wanted to make a point. Uh, you mentioned how it's a personal business. I totally agree. And to your initial question about coming in too low, so this is a discussion I have with buyers all the time. If they come in too low, sometimes the seller gets insulted. It's a personal business. They will legitimately yep. get Absolutely. insulted. Now, yep. sometimes the buyer says, well, then I'll come up. But the problem with that is that sometimes it's already tainted. In the seller's mind, you already insulted them, which means the so seller true. now, even if, if, even if it's subconscious, they now are trying to find like a you. reason why not to go with your deal. You never want to be in that position. But, so that's why that's coming the, in. That's the seller's brokers. That's why broker broker is a healthy relationship. Agree. Agree that the seller's broker can try to mitigate that. But then again, the seller's broker can also tell this, the buyer's agent, hey, listen, I know my seller. Please don't come in with a, a, an offer that's way too low. It's going to hurt the deal. And so that's why the relationship this is, is it's, so it's a very That's a very, very real thing. And it happens way more than you would all like it to. All the time. That's yeah. right. And it's very personal. I love the, the use of the word personal because it is. It's not a corporate situation. You know, I used to be a corporate salesperson selling technology. And that's corporate money being spent versus private money being spent, personal money being spent, a whole different level of emotions that go on. But even the most brilliant financial minds in the world who, you know, most, a lot of them live here, they get emotional about their property. Oh. I mean, they, you know, they lose sight of, you know, what we're trying to do. And they're like, well, my apartment's the best. And, you know, well, my kids grew up here or whatever it is. Right. And, you know, they take it personal too. And sometimes you have people that are typically brilliant and they could be sharks at, you know, at right. their job. But, you know, when it comes to their <clears throat> personal residence, it is well, totally e different. Even on that point, you have someone that, say, bought it for $2 million and now they're selling it, let's say, a year later and it's worth one point nine. Good luck selling it for 1.9 if they know they bought it for two million dollars a year ago, and that's also very personal. You know, right. and and the sense of loss and and well, oh, did I, I overpay say, that's for a, that's it? That's a did sense I, of personal loss. That did I overpay when I first bought it? Right. Or was the market conditions such that I can't even get back what I paid? Right. You know, blah blah whatever. That's a really tough one. It's a tough one, but you know, people have to get over that, and people have to do that because oftentimes in this town, people sell. You know, for reasons they may not want to, but they have to job transfers, you know, change of life and families, whatever. And not often in this town, but once in a blue moon, there's a little bit of a loss. You know, you read about it all the time, you know, with some of these higher price places, you know, $35 million. Oh, well, they lowered the price by $3 million and they finally got $31 million, And everybody else would say, well, that's not so bad. But if they paid $32 million. Right. You know, there's right. a million dollar loss That's there. Right. So, you on know, on top of all the cost of closing, which is right. 10 percent yep. on buying closing and then closing when you're selling closing. Yep. So the and commissions and all that. We're going to talk about uh, commissions. We have a few minutes left. Let's start with it. Anyway, sellers of some of the country's most expensive homes are increasingly negotiating broker commission structures to include incentives in order to push agents to sell for a higher price. In New York City, most sellers pay six percent commission. That's our standard. According to a top broker in New York City, properties over 15 million usually get a 5% commission, while in uh, the over 20 million market, 4% is more the norm. I, I kind of debate those two numbers anyway, but do clients think that structuring commissions in their favor will change brokers' efforts in the sale of their property? Now, you know, I just took a listing at 5% because it's a whole big story, but, you know, it, I've done business with this person many times before, so it makes sense. Certainly not in the, the $15 million category, you know, it's in like the million five category. So, 
you have to do sometimes what you have to do. But the question here is, do sellers sometimes try and incent you to work harder by structuring your commission? Say, I'll give you an extra point if you sell it for this number in this short of time or whatever. Do we see that here in New York? I would just say that I think that when you're looking at 15, 20 million, you know, it's cost driven and it's also an opportunistic, you know, when you're talking about several hundred thousand dollars for a transaction, um, they want to, they want to, they want to leverage that because they're only going to be giving it to one person or two and they want to see what will you take? Yeah. I mean, in terms of the seller incentivizing us, I I would say, um, you know, if if we're going to do that strategy, I want to incentivize the buyer's agent. So a lot of that I'd want to pass on to the buyer's agent. All right, we have to go to break, but one thing that comes to mind quickly is in new developments, you'll often see at the end of a sales cycle, the <coughs> sponsor will come out and say to the, the, the sales agents, okay, we're offering 4% of the buyer's agent, 4%, just to get a deal done to close. With that, we'll go to break. We're coming back. This is Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. We will be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, real estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody. We are back with Louise Phillips Forbes from Halstead Property, Phil Horrigan, leasebreak.com, and Sean McPeak from Compass. All right, listen. So I want to talk about David Rockefeller's mansion, his townhouse on East 65th Street. It's entered the market. He lived in the mansion for decades, died in March at the age of 101. The four-story, 9,760-foot brick and terracotta house will be listed for about $32 million dollars and marketed by Brown Harris Stevens, according to the Wall Street Journal. The price is below what similar Upper East Side properties have sold for because of its poor condition and its location. The mansion at 146 East 65th Street is mid-block between 3rd and Lexington Avenues, away from the desirable hotspots of 5th Avenue and near Central Park. It's also coming on the market at a time when sales of high-end Manhattan properties have slowed. So, 
I have a couple of comments on this. So, first of all, they say it's about location. So, what is wrong with the location between 3rd and Lexington on the Upper East Side? Poor condition is poor condition, but, you know, today, people in this price category are wanting to buy homes or townhouses or brownstones or mansions, as we refer to them as, are going to crash them and, and rebuild them anyway. And is it really horrible to be so far away from Fifth Avenue? So, I mean, what, Miss Townhouse over there, <laughs> you tell well, us. I mean, listen, <clears throat> I think that you're, you know, in some of these cases, these homes are um, are about a piece of history. And, um, in this case, And clearly. this has some lineage to it. Um, I, I think that you see Fifth Avenue buildings in the 60s, these townhouses that were purchased for $40 million and $50 million, were always off of Fifth. I think it will be interesting to observe what happens I mean, for it's kind of it's kind of a status thing, really. I mean, proximity to the park, obviously, but if it was good enough for David mm-hmm. Rockefeller, I mean, you know. well, that that's what I'm getting at. And for example, you know, when I go to my new development building on Second Avenue and 61st Street, I oftentimes walk down 61st, 62nd, <coughs> 63rd, between Third and Second, and I see some of the most magnificent-looking townhouses and and brownstones. I mean, absolutely fantastic. They're they're completely redone. They're beautiful from the outside. You know, some have stoops, some don't. Uh, which is typical on the Upper East Side. They're mostly non-stoop, but they're just gorgeous, gorgeous homes, tree-lined streets. And I'm thinking, so if you're going to tell me, Mr. Broker, that I can get maybe 5 or $10 million more if my house was just one more block west, even as a broker, I think, well, okay, tell me why. So it's a We're perce- talking one block. I mean, some of the, a lot of pricing is perception-driven. I mean, you know, you, you go to Soho, and, uh, you know, when I first got in the business, my first exclusive was in uh, NoHo, right, on Bleecker Street. But if you walk two blocks south, the same apartment is, you know, $200,000, $300,000 more. Yeah, I, I, there's a lot of that. But but let me ask you this. Will people buy this house because it's David Rockefeller's house and then he lived in it for decades and decades? Or does that not matter possibly, to people? Possibly, but I think you, what's I think we, really rare is that it's a 40-footer. And I think that if, to have a house that's 40 feet wide... That I didn't know, so that's unusual. Totally unusual. Maybe uh, Jay-Z should buy it, you know? Rockefeller, you you know? (laughs) Hove, if you're listening. Go and pitch him. That's (laughs) twice as big as a normal, right? In most townhouses, townhouses it's 20 footers. It's 20 footers. So it's double. double. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, for 32 million, that's not so bad. Yeah. Right? I mean, if you picked that up and moved it to Fifth Avenue in Madison, you'd be at 70 million. Really? I mean, I would think so, Yes. Okay, let's move on. So in New York City's brokers serve an integral role in apartment rental process. So we're going to talk about rentals for a bit. So from scheduling viewings to submitting applications, an effective broker can help you navigate the, uh, the potentially daunting um, series of obstacles standing between you and your next apartment. Are you deciding whether to hire a broker? And if you do, is it the right move for you? So my question to all of you, and you know, this, this, this you know, relates to sales as well. Why hire a rental broker? Not all apartments require you to hire a broker. In New York City, there are plenty of no-fee apartments, which you can rent directly from the landlord or the managing company, Mr. Leasebreak.com. Or amazing Leasebreak.com. Well, first of all, just because it's a no-fee apartment or the person doesn't want to pay a fee doesn't mean that they aren't going to work with a broker because many landlords are paying broker fees. Absolutely. So just keep that in mind. So just because someone says, especially in this market where there's a lot of incentives out there, if a renter says, I don't want to pay a broker fee, don't say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't help you. You should say, oh, well, where do you want to live? Because there are many places, especially in the financial district and really all over the city, where the landlord's willing to pay a broker fee. But having said that, whether or not 
the person this the basic decision as to whether or not to have a broker. Um, they help a lot. I mean, a lot. I can't say it's cr- absolutely critical, but I will say is there's an unbelievable amount of value that a rental broker adds to a transaction. I'll, I'll give you an example. This actually happened yesterday. I have <clears throat> a client, young kid from Taiwan, looking for something for about five thousand dollars, a one bedroom. Um, it was a no fee building. We brought him there. You know, we discussed the fees. He was originally going to use insurance. Um, that would have added another month fee to his to his rental. Insurance, you should probably explain what that is. Insurance is an institutional uh, guarantor, so you can pay them, you know, between fifty and one hundred percent of a one month's rent, or maybe more, depending on your profile. So, in international people, people know credit, you know, shoddy history. They whatever. basically guarantee the rent for the landlord. Exactly, but uh, I was able to get his guarantor approved, um, who lives in California, also from Taiwan, but owns a house in California, so. You know, rental broker. You know, save just save this guy forty five hundred bucks. So right, right on the on the fee. So there you go. There's value right there. Yeah, I'm also finding Phil. Yeah. You know, in this marketplace, everybody is coming to. I rep- the only rentals that I really represent are um, in condos that that my owners own and they want to rent out from time to time. And I'm getting a lot of people coming to me lately saying, "Is this the net effect rent?" Which I know in, in some of the rental buildings, you know, they, they, they offer some kind of deals with 13 months, 14 months, you know, right. discount here, discount there. And I say Explain to them, that. yeah, this is, this is a condo. So this is a private ownership situation. So if the rent is $3,500 a month, there's no net effect. There's no this. There's a condo fee and there's a broker fee. And they run for the hills. Like right. Well, so the reason why they're asking is, there a net, is this the net effect of rent is because now they've been trained over the last, say, year or two where they go to a property – they think the price say is five thousand a month, and really it turns out that it's fifty two hundred a month. And the reason why it was being advertised as five thousand is because that's the quote unquote net effective rent when you take into account the free month that the landlord is giving or something like that. You know, some incentive. So that's right. why they're asking that. So when you say you you say to them no, this is the real rent, and then you explain there's an additional brokerage on top of that. It does seem like a lot to a lot of tenants that are now mostly looking at no fee apartments. But let me ask you something. So when I see this net effect stuff, because I I always think of monthly outlay of cash. Right. So I get it. So say seven thousand is is the um, <clears throat> sixty five hundred dollars is the net effect. Okay, and say sixty eight hundred dollars is the the actual rent. Right. So. I'm thinking, or I'm being lured into $6,500 a month. All right, I can afford that. But that's only the first month. So then after that, you're up to $6,800. So, you know, when I look at this, I say, well, I, can, I, can, I can't afford $6,800, but I can afford $65. Right. 300 might be too much. So isn't that kind of putting a spin on, on the well, whole process right. well, whereby so people are getting themselves in trouble? I think this is why renters get a little disillusioned by this and they get upset by it because it feels like it's not quite honest what what probably what I think it needs the, to go the, away right the pro- well the property I don't think the incentives need to go away it, it you could make the argument that instead of saying the net effective rent in your example is 65 you should probably say the rent is six eight hundred dollars a month you'll get a free month in the 13th month that's how it probably yes. should be advertised that's right. the best way to and do it and that's probably the more fair but of course if everyone's doing the net effective which kind of you they are, then to compete with them, you want your property to show up in the internet search as 65, right? Otherwise, you're going to be at a disadvantage if everyone else is including the net effective and showing a lower rental price. So um, one of the things I wanted to say, though, about why rental brokers are just so critical is that there are many landlords 
that only use brokers. That's all they use. There are these small walk-ups in the city. There are brownstones, elevator buildings. They only use brokers in order to advertise their properties. There's no way to even see these properties without brokers. The landlords essentially outsource the marketing to the brokers. That's really what is going on. The price of the apartment would probably be higher if the landlord had to do their own marketing. Instead, they give it to the brokers, and the brokers are out there pushing the properties so, and then you may have a, a rent a broker that represents you as a renter and takes you to the property, and that's often the only way to see the property. Sometimes on these applications, um, a, uh, the application fee will be higher for a person not using a broker, you know, to a management company. So that might tell you something that a management company would rather deal with a broker than deal with a client who may be inexperienced or you know may cause extra drama with the deal. All right. So now, once we get to the deal, whether it's net effect, straight, you know, pay, whatever. How much security deposit can a landlord ask? And I've been asked this question many times because it varies. Sometimes they want one month security, sometimes two. Yeah. If there's a pet involved and the owner says, well, I'll consider a pet, but another extra month security. So right. what is the, the rule of thumb on how much security they can ask? If it's a rent-stabilized apartment, they could only ask for one month. But let's assume it's not a rent-stabilized apartment. I don't believe there's a limit to what the landlord could ask for. But obviously, the more security they ask for, the less um, sort of like, you know, you're not going to like the apartment, right? I mean, you're not going to want the apartment. So the apartment's going to become less desirable. So the landlord has to take that into account when they're asking. Generally, it's one month is how much security deposit someone will ask for. If there's some credit problems or maybe, you know, maybe there's a... Or no credit. Or no credit or maybe well, the that, job... Well, that's what I'm getting at. Maybe there's like a, the income's a little less than it, it should be or less than the landlord would like. They may ask for two months. And then, like you said, Vince, sometimes there's a, a pet involved, and they would say, well, I'd like another $500 for a pet security I deposit. mean, the price range also can affect it because you can price certain renters out if you ask for extra security. So if it's a $10,000 a month two-bedroom, yeah, you can ask for three months you know, right. deposit, mm-hmm. and you, might, you probably won't scare them away. But if it's a $2,000 studio, that might, that might break the bank for, for some of these people. Yeah, and my partner just did a deal in, in one of our condo buildings with someone foreign national coming in for a year. All rent up front because they don't have credit in the U.S. and they don't have any other kind. They have a job now in the U.S., but they're going to be here for a year, but they don't have any credit. So we asked for a whole year up front. The owner was okay with that, and the building was okay with that. In some cases, the buildings are not okay with that. There's still risk. No, that's really, that's really, <laughs> yeah, still a major a real, risk. No, yes. really important distinction here. So I would say the more savvy landlords, and I'm not saying that your landlord's not savvy or that you're not advanced, but tend not to ask for that. If someone's not qualified... You don't want to just say one year front because then what happens in the 11th month or the 12th month? You can hold they, over. That's right. They still are not qualified in that 11th month. So when it comes time to renew the lease, they may just not pay and now they're in the apartment. So usually what the landlords like to do, even though it sounds great to get a year up front, that's right. They want security. They want Five months security, six months security. They want the or time to. Or the time to. for eviction. Exactly. So it takes three months to evict if At somebody. Least. It could take six months. Usually landlords say it. Three months up to, to evict. Yeah, three months is good. It's usually like three to six nice. months and probably four to five to six months, if not more, to evict someone. So that's why landlords like to have a lot of security just in case they need to evict someone. Where does the landlord put your security deposit? This is a great question that I get asked every time I do a rental. Where is my money going? And when I get it back, do I get interest on that money? It's supposed to be in a, an account. I guess it, it doesn't have to be interest-bearing accounts. It should be in, a, uh, I guess, sort of an escrow account. Although I don't know if it has to they're be. Allowed to be. They're allowed to commingle. 
they are allowed. I yeah, think it depends on the no number of units in the building. But anyway, there, there are some laws around that. It might have to do with you're saying they can commingle. Yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no restriction. Okay, so they, I don't think they're supposed to commingle. Whether or not they, the law says they can or can, I'm not sure. But uh, if I think if the there's administrative fee of one percent. So if your interest is more than one percent um, on that security deposit, you're supposed to get it back. And if it's 1% or less, the uh, landlord could keep 1% or less. I'll throw one last little detail on this one. I just won a judgment against my old landlord from last year. Yeah, you told me about that last week. Yeah, and uh, so the court awarded me 9% interest on my security deposit. Wow, why 9%? Wait. All right, we got to hold it right there, go to break. We'll come back and find out from Sean right I after I need to hear messages. that. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their products. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees. Aliens with Gas, we are the extraterrestrial rock show airing every Saturday afternoon on the VoiceAmerica.com variety channel. <laughs> Whatever happens out and about, it kind of dictates our conversation. For sure. And we like to tie in a little bit of the past and obviously keep it real current. And real current was a couple nights ago right here in Phoenix, a phenomenon happened. On Thursday night. Phenomenon. Do, 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 do. <laughs> phenomenon. Do, 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 do. Phenomenon. Do, do. All right, never mind. <laughs> That's every Saturday right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Good Morning New York, real estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back with uh, uh, Louise, Phil, and Sean. And one last question on a rental before we talk about mortgages. And Sean was just telling us a story off, off the, off the uh, air. You know, does my apartment have to be returned to its original condition when I move out? Or if not, will I suffer not getting my deposit back? So, Sean, I don't know how much you want to talk about it, but... Uh, justice is story. awesome is all I have to justice say justice has been served ladies and gentlemen um, <laughs> we uh, no my landlord decided not to give my security deposit back he actually offered me 60% of my security deposit uh, being in the business I you know, was pretty confident I'd get the whole thing back because I left the apartment in a great condition um, you know he threw some weak excuses out he didn't really have any damages or you know, any real reason to not to withhold the security so, um, you know, I waited a few months and I uh, filed an action against him in uh, New York Civil Court in March and uh, he did not respond. I had to have him served in person at his home and then, uh, you know, went to went to inquest and uh, the judge took my side and awarded me 9% uh, interest on my John security. John Peak, if you need any assistance. <laughs> Represented himself, attorney <laughs> in the works. <laughs> 
anyway, that that that's a great story because you know, as MrLeesBreak.com <clears throat> over here, Phil will tell you, you know, justice, as you said before, is is a wonderful thing when people do you wrong, and in this rental business, oftentimes this stuff happens, and you know, you're entitled to it. It's your money. You left the apartment in great condition. You know, if he's just taking his time crapping around to get you back the money, that's his problem. And that's yours. another value of a rental broker. I mean, we could just prevent this from. You know, I can. Pre- I could have. Pre- I've prevented. Obviously, his I broker myself. in this. Do you feel right. that there was ethical action with his broker? Oh, because- absolutely not. I mean, I have a feeling that his broker reported some, uh, you know, mystery damages and might have collected some type of Unreal. fee on Unreal. behalf of some type of work. Oh, yeah, but there was yeah, no. Yeah. There was no. There was nothing. There was no viable. There was somebody that just. So someone rented an apartment on leasebreak.com recently. And they were emailing us as kind of the website owner to say, hey, do you know these guys? You know, they're not giving us our deposit back. And, I mean, I, it gets me livid when I just see, like you, like you said, when justice doesn't feel like it's being done because this person, it seems like they did everything right. They should have got their full deposit back. So we like, well, you know, the leverage that we have is lease break. They get a lot of traffic on our website. So we just like oh. said, we're taking all your units down. You're getting no traffic. Oh, wow. And then we emailed the, the tenant and we said, let us know when this gets resolved. Well, of course, as soon as we took all the listings down now they said okay you'll get your deposit back on thursday you know mm-hmm. and so and we're like we're like we're not, we're not putting the listings back let us know when you get it unbelievable it just unbelievable it, it just drives me insane thank you sean for just like <laughs> just you know just doing it man i mean that i, I oh, man me you, most of the time people don't do it because they don't want to be bothered but when you take the time right. and you go forward and you and you know it, it it's a matter of principle but it's automatic it's also a matter of what's right and wrong and the and vince the landlord knows that someone's probably not going to spend the time to 100%. do what you did that's why they take advantage i mean how many listings out of curiosity did that landlord have um maybe like 20 or so you know they had about 20 listings and they i mean they've rented probably hundreds of apartments on our website so just like you know and i hear something like that so Interesting. All right, let's move on. So taking out a mortgage, likely a necessity for all but some of the most affluent New Yorkers, can be a daunting process and not just for buyers. Financing a home may be one of the biggest decisions you will ever make, and it's natural that you'll have plenty of questions, but says one mortgage broker, make sure they're the right one. So there are things that really frustrate mortgage brokers and for the right reasons, just like you know, real estate brokers get frustrating. What are some of the things that mortgage brokers can really get frustrated by in this process, which is daunting? As I said a minute ago, it's a, it's a daunting process. I, it's interesting. I, I I know that mortgage brokers can get frustrated with the broker and with the buyer, etc. However, I'm seeing mortgage people get so frustrated with their own bureaucracy. Yes, I the mean, big banks yes, cannot yes. compete. I mean, that is where most of their frustration Absolutely. is, it seems like. They're yeah. calling us, apologizing. I'm so sorry. It's taking a long time. Yeah. The underwriter is in Wyoming, and they're not getting back to me. Bingo. And Underwriting just, seems to be under lock and key these and, days and and really slowing down and the entire centralized, process. Centralized in, uh, you know, Timbuktu. Right. So, you know, Without when you sensitivity do, to the local marketplace right. that they're underwriting to. Okay. I, New York being one of them. And, and quite frankly, you know, for somebody who does hundreds of millions of dollars with a business and refers out a handful of very, very successful individuals you know, I just had lunch with the head of Chase at J.P. Morgan, and I was like, you can't compete. Your bureaucracy right. is ridiculous. Your private clients, I'm having to refer them to First Republic. That's not right. you gotta fit, You got to problem solve it. They have to problem solve it. It's the same with some of the other bigger banks, too. But how do they problem solve that? Because they're so big, and they're, they offer programs across the board, across the nation. So as I said before, you know, 
they have to figure out a way. Underwriting has to figure out a way to be sensitive. They need to have a SWAT team, is what they need. No, they need to localize they underwriters. Need to localize, which the, the better yeah. with the better banks. I, I always that's a, that's how I pitch a you know a mortgage broker or somebody. I said I, I have no I have no skin in the game, but you know when everything when all is equal, you know it, it, with rates and everything, having a local underwriter is key. And I mean, it goes back to our first topic of winning a bidding war or winning some type of offer is that when you have a competent financing. Uh, you know, partner that, you know, you can make these deals happen with just like cash. All right. Aside from their own bureaucracy, which we all agree needs to really be revamped, they sometimes complain <clears throat> about working with over-aggressive real estate agents. <laughs> so what what do we do to, to fix that? I mean, are we overly aggressive with mortgage brokers? Well, yeah, I guess more, the, more so than with attorneys or equal? Probably or what, not. What's the deal? I guess, I guess, well, what's the issue first? I'll probably complain that. <laughs> over-aggressive real estate brokers? I think it's an issue for all of us. Yeah, I never heard of that before. That's not, no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, but uh, my yeah. guess is the problem is that we're calling them eight times a day. Like, we're well, waiting on the rate. Where's the uh, pre-qualification letter or the pre-approval letter, that kind of it's thing. It's a two-way street because if the mortgage broker is not communicating correctly or not educating the client and we're having to step in and do it for them, that causes more back and forth. That causes more emails, more traffic, more, you know. I mean, the, good, the good guys that I work with, guys, I don't, I don't chase them. You don't need to. If they're communicators... Then that's the key. Exactly. It's just that's like how you figure out who you can work with. But I, I agree with, with you. Our- I agree with you, and that's why we we form teams and pick people that we like to work with because they're efficient. But here's the thing: back to the, the the big office problem, they may get frustrated with us sometimes if we do have to call them because they're not getting answers from their bureaucracy. They can't give us the right answers that we're asking for. So it's kind of like we're stuck in the middle. They're stuck in the middle, and they don't really know what to do. The other thing that they complain about is when when clients, when their clients turn in incomplete documents, okay, you've got to kind of undress yourself with a mortgage banker just like you do with a co-op board. So you've got to get these people everything they ask for. And so when that piece of the process breaks down, the real estate agent's on the phone, the mortgage broker's on the phone, the client in the middle who needs to get the mortgage is like, I'm busy, I'm working, I, I can't, you know. So it's all of these things that if you, I always say, and I'm sure the rest of you do, when you embark upon a search to buy real estate, get everything in order even before you call your agent and say, I'm ready to start looking. So when you do find something, however long it takes, your paperwork for the, the mortgage broker is in place. Your pre-approval is in place. Your paperwork that eventually will go to a co-op board if you're buying a co-op or even a condo board is in place. It's when everybody scrambles at the last minute to get things done, it isn't going to work. And then you get this stubborn client who says, I'm not giving you that. That's personal and I'm not doing that. Well, how are you going to get a mortgage for X amount of dollars if the banker doesn't know what you earned last year or what you have in 401k or what you have in you know, stocks you know and how, bonds. You know how you fix that? You take them to a property and they lose out on a bidding war or something and then they learn their lesson and then they start doing what you said. But I don't have that lesson issue. Lesson learned. No. I don't have well, that issue Well, it, it depends. It depends. I do and I don't. You know, And, right. and when I do, it's usually a first-time buyer who is, regardless of the purchase price, it's but a they type just of client. don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Well, if someone's going to uh, have a problem with giving a banker some information, they're definitely going to have a problem yeah. giving you information for the co-op board because that's when we cringe. Yeah, okay. that's when we cringe. Um, and I will say that probably the buyers that are buying condos that will probably have give maybe a agent a little more problem giving information because they're just not kind of already – they haven't been told by you a thousand times, you're going to give your whole life to me for the co-op board, you know, so they may be a little more surprised when the bank – is asking for a lot more than they used to ask for. So some buyers are a little surprised by that. But I kind of agree 
with Louise in the sense that it's not like a huge issue, like of all the issues that we kind of deal with on a daily basis, because usually we find a good broker, a good mortgage person, a good, sorry, a good mortgage broker or mortgage banker, and we kind of stick with that person for years and years and years, and it's just one yeah. less thing to worry about, right? Well, right. I also think that, that that's part of building an individual's team. So I don't think my buyers should have all this queued up. I want to actually build the team with them and for them. If they already have a private banker, then please introduce me so I can support them. Absolutely. All right. We have to leave it there. I'm out of time. That's our show for today. Thanks to Phil, Louise, and Sean. We'll be back next week. Be kind to one another. For all of us at Voice America, all around the world, thanks for joining us, and I will see you next time. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.